This is episode 126 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Revolver versus Semi-Auto in a Crisis Situation, A Quiet Life, How to Lower Your Profile or Go Fully Off the Grid, and How to Identify Spider Bites and Treat Them. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, we got a, uh, a comment. Jennifer left a comment on episode 125, uh, Friday's podcast. We talked about bugging out after school and uh, just kind of wanted to read it because I, I believe that there's a lot of you that are in this same situation. Hey, I really enjoyed this podcast. Bugging out from school is a big deal to me as well as something that I've been thinking about in depth. You read some key issues, especially if the school buses your child to child is going to is un, taking, I guess, something to an undisclosed location there. Something that could give parents a peace of mind is if their child has a phone, you can make sure you have the GPS locator on. We have it for our older three kids. Now our four-year-old doesn't have a phone, so that would be my concern, of course. I'm a teacher, so I would not be able to leave for the for for his daycare. I do have a lot of trust in his teachers who I really like and believe they would really take care of him. So that's a good point. The GPS is always uh, something that you can have on there if you if your kids know, um, or if you know if you give them a phone and they keep their GPS on. Hopefully they do, and uh, you can always track them in that way. And then again, the important thing is to have that good relationship with the teachers and the school. Um, you know, go up there, get to know that that school very well, the administrators very well, the teachers very well. Communicate on a regular basis. I think that that goes a long way. If you are, you know, you're going to be in in the public school system. If you're going to be in any school, uh, for that matter, I think that's always helpful. So uh, thanks, Jennifer, for leaving that comment and giving that idea of the GPS locator on uh, on smartphones. Let's go ahead and get started with the podcast this uh, uh, today. And uh, our first article is coming to us from SurvivalSullivan.com. It's a revolver versus semi-auto in a crisis situation uh, article. And uh, there's some good points made here. Uh, and there's some good comments as well. So let's go ahead and get started. It's been said that a rifle's purpose is projecting your will across a distance, while a pistol is for controlling your immediate surroundings in unforeseen or only vaguely foreseen situations. In other words, a rifle is a deliberate weapon while pistols tend to be spur of the moment. Crisis situations tend to arise quickly and with little or no notice. And even when in the midst of a longer-term crisis, the situation tends to be fluid and rot with opportunities for surprises. Unless you want to spend all your time with a rifle or shotgun slung off of you, handguns are clearly an invaluable tool when the situation goes into an uncharted territory. The reality that having a long gun on you on your person at all times will be as impractical in a long-term crisis as it is today. Now, to introduce some controversy, we are going to dare to ask the question, which is better in a crisis situation, a semi-automatic pistol or a revolver? This often time this oftentimes comes down to a matter of preference and opinion, and we all know that those can be the most heatedly contested debates. So we're going to run through a list of pros and cons for each and let everyone make their own choice. There, there is no wrong answer, no matter what some experts may tell you. So capacity. The issue of magazine or cylinder in the case of revolvers is a hands-down win for most full semi, size semi-autos. 
Large frame semis in most popular calibers and with double stack magazines provide you with between 10 and 17 rounds loaded in your weapon and the ability to double your ready supply with a single extra mag in your pocket. Revolvers, on the other hand, give you 6 rounds, in a few cases 7, and in the cases of 22s up to 9 or even 12 rounds in the cylinder. The issue of capacity becomes close to a draw when smaller framed automatics are considered and when other single stack magazine weapons such as 1911s are entered into the debate. Small and medium frame carry guns often utilize a single stack magazine providing for 7 or 8 rounds. This narrows the firepower gap considerably. I often tell students that if they are in deeper than 6 rounds worth, they are probably in too deep anyway, and a little extra magazine capacity may, may well be irrelevant. I also like to point out that 6 rounds on, on target is generally more useful than 17 fired too quickly. A large magazine capacity could have the unwanted side effect of making you reckless, which is a matter of training and discipline. Reloading Many believe that the ability to reload quickly is an advantage for semi-automatics. A quick magazine change is certainly faster than feeding shells one at a time into a cylinder. However, there are a variety of revolver speed loaders on the market which allow you to reload all six or more chambers of your revolver simultaneously. Speed loaders are as easy to carry as extra magazines and with a bit of practice are just as quick. Speed loaders really narrow the gap in reloading speed so functionality this matter becomes pretty much off a draw as well. I will note that if your chosen revolver is an old school gate loaded single action you are pretty much stuck with the relatively slow reloading process. Only practice can narrow the gap and odds are really good that even with that you aren't going to beat a magazine swap or a quick dump with a speed loader. One of my favorite all around handguns for outdoor activities and wearing around my property is a Pieta knockoff of the 1873 Colt and I've just had to learn to live with the fact that reloading is not going to be lightning quick. The best way to counter this is to end any confrontation divisively before anyone has a chance to reload. Practice accuracy and discipline are key once again. Jams and misfires. Here's one area where the revolver gains a clear win. You can't jam a revolver. Furthermore, if you have a misfire, the only procedure is required is to pull the trigger again or cock the hammer as usual and pull the trigger again. Revolvers are pretty much unstoppable in this regard. Not so semi-automatics. There are a lot of factors that can cause a misfeed, a stovepipe, or other form of failure to feed. Depending on the severity of a jam, they can at times be a bear to clear, and even if they are simple, they require a multi-step procedure to get your weapon up and running again. Even a misfire resulting from old or faulty ammunition requires racking the slide, which requires altering your grip and taking your weapon off target. This is never a good thing in a gunfight. Proper maintenance, proper ammo storage, and religious inspection will cut the odds of an issue, but we live in a stuff-happens world, and Murphy's Law is a big part of the standing orders of, for the universe. Practice, training, and discipline are the key to overcoming these issues in a high-stress situation. Ammunition cost and availability. This is probably out of sequence, but I figured I'd throw one in where the semi-automatic pistols beats the revolver just to keep things fair. Semi-automatics are far more prevalent in professional circles these days. This includes law enforcement, military, and security professionals. This means that the ammunition for these guys is more readily available in larger quantities and at a better price. In many instances, it means that there is a wider range of purpose 
specific ammunition available for these calibers as well. Specialty ammo such as frangible rounds that prevent over-penetration in home settings, a mind-boggling array of personal defense rounds, and even inexpensive training ammo are readily available and relatively inexpensive in the most common semi-automatic calibers, specifically 9mm and 40, which are the standard chambering for most Western militaries and law enforcement. The same can be said for magazines. If you choose a model that is widely used by military and police, there are more magazines available on the market. There is some variety of ammunition available in revolver calibers, but it isn't stocked to the same degree in gun shops and sporting goods stores, and it is generally more expensive. Should there be a long-term crisis situation, the more common your ammunition is, the more likely it is that you will be able to find a way to resupply should the need arise. The same is true for acquiring additional magazines. If you get a Glock, for instance, you can be assured that there are a lot of magazines floating around out there. Durability and reliability. In terms of durability and reliability, I like my 1873 above all others. It has a simple action, not a lot of moving parts, even fewer small, small parts and springs, and is about as rugged as you can get. There isn't a lot to go wrong with this gun. If you look at many old Colts carried by actual cowboys back in the day, you're, you're infinitely more likely to find dents in the butt from pounding fence stakes than you are to find notches carved to commemorate victorious gunfights. Any pistol that can do double duty as a hammer is okay in my book. Revolvers in general are simp simpler than semi-automatics. Even the advent of the double action didn't add a lot to their complexity, and all the moving parts are well protected within the group and frame. I'm sorry, within the grip and frame. There is a lot less to gum up if you miss a cleaning or carry it for days on a dusty or muddy trail. Where long-term durability in harsh conditions is concerned, simpler is almost always better. But this is not a clear win for the revolver. Most modern semi-automatic pistols are very reliable in their own right, though I don't recommend using them to pound fence staples. If you are diligent in your cleaning and maintenance, you will get many decades of trouble-free use from a good semi-automatic semi pistol. I have a Taurus PT-92 that I have been carrying as my primary weapon where a full size is appropriate since 1986. I had to replace the extractor last year, but other than that, it is completely original and fully functional after untold thousands of rounds and thousands of often rugged miles in a holster. Speed. There are those that will argue that semis are faster shooting. I'm not sold on that notion. A double action revolver can put rounds down range accurately as a, at a pretty high rate. In either case, it's how fast you can require or reacquire your target and pull the trigger issue. This is going to have a lot to do with training, practice, and discipline, again. As a side note, if you've ever watched cowboy action shooting, you know that in the right hands, a single action army revolver can sound like a machine gun uh, and print every round in the center of mass. But this is for some next level stuff that takes years to achieve. Power. When I'm out in the woods, especially where there are large predators there might, that might want to eat me, I favor a larger revolver and a larger caliber. My gun in this instance is my 1873 and 45 Colt. A 44 or 357 Magnum might edge the old 45 out a bit, but I'm a stickler for tradition. In terms of practical handguns with affordable ammunition in big calibers, the revolver takes it. There are a few semi-automatics that shoot big calibers, but they're fairly exotic or at least rare, and their ammo is priced accordingly. So in my book, in bear country, the revolver wins. For those with limited grip strength. On numerous occasions, I have had older people in my shooting classes. 
Quite often, for older women in particular and men with arthritis, loading magazines or racking the slide can be difficult for them. In, in all other respects, they are perfectly capable of shooting well, but if you can't load your weapon, it's going to be tough to shoot. For these folks, a revolver is often the answer. I don't know if I've accomplished much here or not. I am not going to declare one type of handgun victorious over the other or tell anyone this is what you got to have. The reality is both semi-automatic pistols and revolvers have a lot to recommend them and the areas in which one wins are offset by the areas in which it loses. What is the best handgun for you in a crisis situation? The best handgun for you is the one that you are comfortable, proficient, and confident to use. It is the one that feels best to you. In the holster and in your hand, it is the one that has been at the center of your practice, training, and discipline. All right, so a uh, good article there uh, over at Survival Sullivan. Um, there are some, some comments here that people have said that they have had, uh, uh, you know, uh, revolvers uh, jam on them and, uh, you know, have had issues with uh, ruptured cases and things like that. Um, you know, you read about that, you wonder uh, what's the percentage of that happening. I mean, is it possible? Yeah, I saw a picture on Facebook where the, the whole cylinder, the whole top of a revolver was just blown off. And uh, that was probably, I think it was a reload, if I'm not mistaken or not. Uh, it just, you know, whatever, maybe it was uh, packed too tightly, something wasn't done right. And uh, it jammed, uh, or the, you know, the bullet fired off, but it stayed in the, in the, the pipe and, and just, just blew off the top of the revolver. So, I mean, there's always going to be situations like that. But a lot to consider here. Again, the, the issue is go out and practice. Um, I've never really considered older people with arthritis and uh, women who can't, like, you know, rack, it, rack a semi-auto back. Never really thought about that, how um, a revolver might be a better choice for them. Uh, but that makes a lot of sense. I guess, you know, when you're seeing, when you're helping to train people and you're seeing that, uh, you're going to see a lot of those kinds of things. I like that the author here of this uh, of this uh, post doesn't you know doesn't come across like you have to get this you have to get that uh, you know you see a lot of that in preparedness or even in just you know firearm forums and things like that uh, you say the wrong thing and, and you know you get uh, you'll get blasted but uh, you know it, again it's important to know what works for you and to apply those things um, and uh, it's important to be uh, have, be in a position where you can defend yourself. So Survival Sullivan, some good points there. There are some links that you're going to want to go check out. Go check that out. Our next article comes to us from survivalblog.com. This was actually written by uh, James Wesley himself. A lot of the times the articles over there, you know, are uh, there, uh, people are submitting articles, but uh, this one looks like it's uh, written by James Wesley, and he includes, uh, he includes some information from somebody else. But Good information for those who are thinking about going off the grid. So I'm going to read this one. I'll come back with a little bit of commentary. The title of this one is A Quiet Life, How to Lower Your Profile or Go Fully Off the Grid. Parts of my work, li <laughs> parts of my work life in most weeks involves consulting phone calls. The majority of my clients are in the U.S. and Canada. Not surprisingly, many of my clients have questions for me about privacy. These questions are generally along these lines. Buying guns privately buying land privately, and how to avoid paper trails on storage food purchases. In this essay, I will try to address all three of these topics as well as a few related points. One of the key concepts here is going analog, but first I'll mention completely dropping off the grid. The going dark concept implies someone cutting off all normal contacts. This is often 
uh, coincident with re relocating in an attempt to disappear without a trace. This extreme in privacy is only required for someone in duress. That is, for instance, someone who is the target of a manhunt for a criminal case witness who is at risk, someone evading an abusive ex-spouse, or someone who is fleeing creditors. Details on fully going dark are included in several popular books such as How to Disappear, Ease Your Digital Footprint, Leave False Trails, and Vanish Without a Trace. There's uh, links to articles there. For most of us, or for, the most of the for most of the rest of us, simply lowering your profile is sufficient. The following are a few suggestions. Going analog. The phrase going analog refers to limiting or eliminating all digital communications for fear of tracking or for monitoring. The term, was popular, popular, <laughs> the term was popularized in the ongoing television series Mr. Robot. Important proviso. The preceding link to Mr. Robot requires some caution. Although this television series contains a great wealth of practical computing hacking and privacy tradecraft, it is marred by some unnecessary crudity and kinky fornication. So do not allow children to watch it. Keep your remote close at hand, ready to skip past the brief gratuitous sex scenes. Most of privacy is just common sense. Keep your paper trail to a minimum. Don't offer your name in transactions if you don't have to. Remember, cash is king and cash is private. In a recent comment, comment to an odds and sods column item, survival blog reader Charles K. offered some great advice on privacy. It is so succinct that I'm reposting it, all of it. My rules for security. Don't answer the phone unless you know who is calling. If I don't recognize the number or caller... I don't answer. If it's important, they will leave a message. It's amazing how few important calls I get. Number two, if possible, don't own a computer with a built-in camera or microphone. Mine is 12 years old. It's old. It's a little slow, but it works. In the next one, that's going to be a big problem. Number three, use credit cards and debt cards as little as possible. In my case, I only use debt cards at my bank branch, ATM, and credit cards only on large purchases. Otherwise, I only use cash. I limit my online purchases to Amazon and on rare occasion Walmart. Disable Bluetooth and Wi-Fi in your car, then disable Bluetooth and Wi-Fi on your phone. I don't like that there is a built-in microphone in the car, but without Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, it should not be a problem. I don't want to talk to my car, and I don't want my car talking to me. I usually do not answer my front door, depending on who is there. The optical peephole is a wonderful invention. Finally, knowing who you are talking to, know them well. In my case, I don't talk to my nephews about my prepping. I love them dearly like my own kids. I don't have any of my own, but they have really big mouths. They couldn't keep a secret if their lives depended on it, and it might. I concur with Charles. Using old school typewriters. We need to assume that all email is monitored and archived. This even includes encrypted email. Instead of emails, consider sending out old-fashioned, handwritten, or better yet, typewritten letters and envelopes. It is legal to put the addresses, mailing addresses, in both the to and from blocks on the envelope, so do so. For the greatest privacy, especially for letters to newspaper editors, use an electric typewriter. My favorite model is the now obsolete correcting IBM Selectric 2. I prefer these because they have quick change 88 character type balls in 30 plus different 10 point and 12 point fonts. It is notable that it is the type head that creates a typewriter's unique fingerprint. By changing the type ball, you change the fingerprint. Selectric so typewriters, type balls, and correcting ribbons are now available at very reasonable prices on eBay, Amazon, and through your local Craigslist. 
IBM controlled three-fourths of the typewriter market in the 1970s and early 1980s, so there are huge numbers of perfectly serviceable machines out there. I recently saw a set of 16 assorted typeballs sell on eBay for just over $20 postage paid. Technically, IBM Selectric typewriters are considered digital analog, but their typewritten output is analog and that is our goal. Security note. Keep in mind that the film ribbon cartridge for Selectric typewriters retain the exact sequence of letters typed and that can be recovered forensically. You can burn the used ribbon cartridge, but that makes a stinky mess. One trick that I learned in my ASA unit was I'd simply run the ribbon through a cross-cut paper shredder. It will spool out of the cartridge as the shredder runs. It gobbles up the film ribbon nicely. If type, if type fingerprint anonymity is not a concern for you, then you might also consider buying a traditional manual typewriter. These are great for off-grid living. Just be sure that it is in very good working order and that spare ribbons are available before you buy. Buying guns privately. In about 35 of the 50 states, buying used guns privately is still possible. The balance of states have enacted so-called universal background check laws. These laws effectively made private cells, private party cells illegal, although most of these states exempt pre-1899 manufactured guns and black powder replicas from paperwork. The privacy door is otherwise now shut. If you are now living in one of these universal background check states, then I re recommend that you seriously consider voting with your feet to move to a more gun-friendly United friendly state. Sorry. One other option for some universal background check states is building your own guns from 80% complete receivers. If you live in the state that still does allow private party sales, then you usually have several options. These include newspaper for sale ads, gunbroker.com, auctionarms.com, and of course gun shows. At gun shows, you will need to find non-licensed table holders who are there trading guns, typically upgrading their personal collections. In trust, we trust. To convey land deeds privately, it is best to use a family trust. By using a trust, the names of the owner occupants do not show up on the deeds or tax rolls. Only the trust name is visible, so obviously you should pick a fairly generic trust name that does not include your surname or location. A good example name would be the Plains Trust. A key tactic in lowering your profile is minimizing your paper trail. Every time you use a credit or debit card, you are creating a fairly permanent record of your purchase. The obvious solution is using good old cash. If possible, you should make the purchase of any controversial books or gear face-to-face -face with cash and don't leave your name. Many of the smaller storage food vendors are willing to accommodate cash customers as long as the purchase is less than $10,000 worth of food. You simply call them and arrange an in-person payment and pickup. Even companies that advertise we have no storefront operation are usually willing to meet customers face-to-face -face for a cash on the barrelhead transaction. You just need to phone them to confirm they have that particular stock on hand and schedule a date and time to the purchase. In this brief essay, I've just scratched the surface on the topic. I'm really looking forward to blog readers' comments with additional suggestions and some tips and tricks. All right, so there are 33 comments here uh, over at Survival Blog. You know, Survival Blog has a big community, and so uh, a lot of good things here that you can come and, uh, and read in the comments section. Uh, to just gain a little bit more understanding of, uh, you know, lowering your footprint and uh, going off grid if that's what you want to do. Um, I've always been under the uh, under the the understanding that if you are on the internet, no matter how you are on the internet, 
you are you are you have the potential for being tracked. Um, you know, you can use Tor and you can use those kinds of things uh, to, you know, VPNs and anonymous VPNs and stuff like that. But if they really, really wanted to find you, they're going to find you. Um, they're going to they're going to target you. Sometimes it's better to hide in plain sight, uh, but just not to draw attention to yourself. Right. Uh, kind of like the gray man on uh, if you can be the gray man online, you can be, you know, the gray man uh, or gray man in public. You can be the gray man online. And so. Uh, you know, I, I think that's what you can do every once in a while. Share out a uh, a cat, you know, a cat video, or uh, every once in a while, just you know, visit some sites that are just so generic, you know, that are that uh, don't have anything to do with anything. But uh, I, I think that if you're online, even people who go to Survival Blog for the longest time, I remember uh, when I first started Prepper website. Uh, people would get so mad at me when I would do like a giveaway, and I would like, hey, you can earn a point. Uh, like it was a raffle copter giveaway, and you could earn a point by sharing out uh, sharing out on social media. And so many people got so upset because it's like we don't have social media, you know. So that really takes us out of this giveaway. And and so I I did some things for other people, like uh, doing some comments and and some giveaways that were just comment driven. But the fact is, is that if you're online, they can track you if you want, and so uh, if they want. So uh, something to consider there. I mean, you would have to go completely off uh, grid and uh, completely, completely. So uh, and unless you have some serious military encryption there. But anyway, uh, you know, some good ideas there. Uh, I think it is a good idea to lower your footprint as much as possible. I think it's a good idea to have cash um, until they take away cash. And you look at some of these other countries um, you know, Martin Armstrong talks about, um, you know, I know a lot of Christians, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm a pastor, a lot of you know that. Um, the thing with the um, with uh, the chip, people kept talking about that and that kept coming up on Facebook all over the place. Uh, and people were like, hey, that's the mark of the beast and blah, blah, blah. And even on John Haller's uh, uh, a prophecy update this week, uh, this Sunday, he, he mentioned that a little bit. Um, you know, Martin Armstrong, the economist, talks about um, that one of the reasons why governments are going more to like a digital and getting rid of cash, uh, and, you know, it's definitely not some religious aspect of it, but it's to track uh, track the money so that they can so to taxes they don't lose out on tax money. So 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 many governments are so hard up for money right now that they you know they don't want any uh, you know. Uh, anything to slip out of their hands so they're willing to track it uh with you know on a, on a digital level so that they can get every little uh you know piece that they can now uh does that play into any kind of prophetic thing down the road probably uh does that you know these people that are getting chipped for you know all these good reasons and all that is it programming maybe uh you know there's a lot of other things i'm going to actually link to uh, john haller's prophecy update if you're interested in that um, it's always good. Uh, I always watch it every Sunday or Monday. Uh, I tend to tend to watch that one, but might be might be interested because he uh, he talks a little bit about that and uh, goes into a little bit uh, of uh, the you know how it plays in biblically. But that's you know that's people see that you know that are not coming from a religious idea. They're coming from that point of view that that's why they're wanting to to do that. And so you have. Uh, you know, places in you know, India has really cut back on the cash that they've had, and I don't know if you follow that, um, but eventually I, I, it might go to that. Eventually, it might start. They might 
start pulling back on our cash. But until then, it's not hard to go ahead and do that. And, uh, you know, if you are a Dave Ramsey supporter, if you've ever listened to Dave Ramsey and, and uh, you know, try to get your get out of debt and all that kind of stuff, he, he talks about doing envelopes. And, uh, you know, you, you go get your money out and you put them in envelopes and you use the money for that specific category. And you don't, you know, you don't borrow or anything. You don't go spend credit card money. It kind of helps you to kind of uh, stay within your budget. And so if any, any, uh, anybody at the bank, all, you know, questioned you, I know like my bank, you take out more than a thousand, uh, they got to go get it. Uh, maybe it's 500 now. At one point it was a thousand. Now it's 500. They've got to go get it approved. They don't ask you what you're doing with it or anything, but they have to have the, the branch manager. Cause I go to one of the, you know, small branches that's like in a grocery store or whatever. It's a little bit more convenient to go into the big one and uh, just in passing. And uh, they'll just go to that little you know store manager, and boom, they they get that approved and, and come back. Uh, but you know, it seems like they are watching it. You know, they are watching the the big amounts of of uh, you know money that's coming out. And so you know, my uh, my sniffer always goes up when those kinds of things start happening. But you can be taking out a little bit of money at a time and uh, using that money uh, wisely when you when you buy big items like this or items that might. Um, people might you know have concern over if there was a, a digital footprint on that one so go check out survival blog there's some links there and then also the comments you're going to want to check that out our next one's going to give you the ebgbs or maybe i don't know if you're if you're a spider lover maybe not um, but uh, yeah if you if you don't like spiders i remember i posted <laughs> one of the it was one of the the pictures that had all these different spiders on there and and you had so many people responding to it. It's like, no, 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 don't. No, I hate spiders, blah, 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 and uh, those kinds of things. Uh, so sometimes they give you the EBGBs. I don't know if you, uh, if you're, if you are on Facebook. There's that one, uh, that one video that this guy looks like he's uh, gonna trap this humongous spider, and he's going up to it, and then right before he like captures it, it jumps at the screen. This probably scared the crap out of a whole bunch of people. Uh, but you know that's something funny to because uh, it just kind of plays into the fact that uh, you know spiders are, are like that. Or you, maybe you saw the one on uh, the video where someone hits a spider and then it has all these little babies on the back of it and then all these sp spiders go all over the place and so they they hit it with a with a with a broom and then there's just slapping the floor all over the place because all these little spiders are going everywhere so there is actually a uh, a small video a gif you know one of those that just keeps playing over and over again where uh there's a a, a spider on a person's hand i just i just ugh gives you the EBGBs and there's all these small little spiders, baby spiders on the back of it. So uh, just just going for that is uh, will, will be worth it. But there's going to be some uh, pictures of spider bites and things like that. So I think this is one of those things where you definitely want to go visit the website. This is coming to us from TruePrepper.com. It's how to identify spider bites and treat it. Feeling a sharp sting and then finding an unknown spider bite can be a disturbing experience. If you know which symptoms are dangerous and the basics on how to treat dangerous spider bites, you will be one step ahead. Learning to identify a spider bite is important so you can know the risk and how to treat the bite. Some spiders can cause tissue necrosis, paralysis, and even death, but others can hardly break the skin and they don't have venom toxic they don't have venom toxic to humans. This is one reason an unknown spider bite can be unsettling. You simply don't know what you're up against until the symptoms appear. Shaking out your boots and gloves before you put them on and checking sleeping bags before you climb in are always a good idea. 
Don't get caught off guard, and if you do, don't panic. Just find the spider, seek medical help if needed, and treat the bite. Find the spider. The best way to find out what kind of spider bite or bit you is pretty simple. Find the spider. If you can find the actual spider, you should have no trouble identifying it's based on size, color, and markings. If you still don't have any clue as to what type of spider it is, you can consider capturing or killing it and bringing it with you when you are seeking medical attention. Spiders that require antivenom are pretty easy to identify in the bright lights of a medical facility. Almost all spiders are venomous. While that may sound pretty bad, most spiders in America are not poisonous to humans. One of the spiders that do have venom dangerous to humans, only a few of them can actually break skin with their bite. That leaves only a select few that are dangerous enough to do some serious damage if the bite is left unattended. Even then, the result of a spider can vary from person to person and spider to spider. Spiders that require medical attention. There are only a handful of spiders that require everyone to get medical attention from their bites. They are well known because of this and you should recognize most if not all on the list. The black widow, the hobo spider, the wandering spider, the brown recluse, and the tarantula. Of these spiders, the ones that you really need to be aware of if you live in the U.S. are the black widow and the brown recluse. Other spiders can cause issues for people with allergies or other conditions or can cause issues localized to the bite area, but the black widow and brown recluse are the most problematic. The black widow spider bite. Everyone knows what a black widow looks like with its distinctive red hourglass on its abdomen. It is a little known fact that only the females are venomous. The bites themselves are like a pinprick and you may feel nothing. The reaction from the venom is quick though and pain and burning will spread from the location of the bite. Black widow spiders are common all throughout the U.S. so you should definitely be able to recognize one. Here is a picture of a black widow spider bite. So there's a black widow and then a black widow spider bite right next to it. It might even look like uh, something you just brushed up against uh, some concrete or something. You know, they got two little, two little bites there or two little pricks. Additional symptoms include numbness, nausea, headache, muscle cramping, and sweating. The brown recluse spider bite. The brown recluse spiders are small and aren't very aggressive, but they still pack a punch. The bite may not be painful and the venom takes a while to take effect, so you may not notice the bite at all. Soon it will itch and develop a red ring around the bite area. From here it will blister and possibly cause tissue necrosis. Antibiotics and possibly even surgery are used to treat brown recluse bites. Brown recluses are mo more common in the southern part of the U.S., especially from Texas to Georgia. Here's a picture of a brown recluse spider bite. So you have the brown recluse and then also this nasty bite that uh, someone has on their thumb. Additional symptoms include kidney failure, seizure, and coma. The hobo spider bite. Hobo spiders are localized to the Pacific Northwest. Unlike many other spiders on the list, they can attack unprovoked. The bite can be painless, but the venom starts reacting within 15 minutes, causing pain and numbness. Here's a picture of a hobo spider bite. And the spider, that just looks like a little burn, actually. And uh, maybe it's just a little blurry, but it just looks like a little burn. Additional symptoms include nausea, headache, weakness, joint pain, and sweating. The wandering spider bite. And man, this is ugly, ugly, <laughs> ugly looking spider. The Brazilian wandering spiders aren't just stuck in Brazil. They can be found in Central and South America as well. The bite is very painful and the venom starts reacting immediately, causing sweating and drooling. The anti-venom is important to seek out when bitten. Since the bites can cause death, here is a picture of a Brazilian wandering spider bite. It's a nasty bite there. It looks like, uh, actually like 
piece of flesh has been taken out a little bit. It's a you know close-up picture there. Additional symptoms include tissue necrosis and burning skin. The tarantula spider bite. Tarantulas enjoy desert climates and some are even kept as pets. They are large, hairy, and have visible fangs. Although venomous, the bites don't possess a threat to life and limb. The bites are a sharp pain and the venom causes the area to swell and become warm. Here's a picture of a tarantula spider bite. Additional symptoms include rash, itching, and trouble breathing. Other spiders known for their bites. These spiders won't give you, give you bites that have you showing up in the ER anytime soon, but they still are well known to test out their chompers. A wolf spider. These hairy spiders run pretty fast. They are large, larger than most spiders, so a wolf spider bite can easily break the skin. Fortunate, fortunately, their venom is not very effective against humans, and bites can be treated like a typical spider bite. A camel spider. These freakish-looking arachnids are brown, gray, or tan and live in warm desert climates around the world. They are usually nocturnal and are attracted to light. Camel spiders don't carry dangerous venom, but they have a large mandible jaws that can be very painful when they bite. If the camel spider is large enough, it can cause profuse bleeding. Mouse spiders. Also known as Mesulona, these spiders are mostly native to Australia. Bites from these spiders can cause health problems if they are not attended to. Luckily, bites are not common. House spiders. House spiders come in a few different varieties. Domestic house spiders are also known as barn funnel weavers and are typically harmless even though they can be confused with the brown recluse with their size and color. The southern house spider is also pretty harmless although it is bigger. The common house spider has a bite that is painful and can cause mild swelling. They are typically found in basements and crawl spaces. Parson spiders. Also known as the eastern parson spider, the parson spider is found mostly in the central U.S. A parson spider bite is rarely painful, but they still do bite. Jumping spiders. These spiders can be pretty surprisingly considering they jump and can be fairly large. The good news is that they are mostly found outside in the woods. Deal with the bite as you would any regular spider. Sack spiders. These yellow spiders can appear brownish in dim light, allowing them to be often confused with the brown recluse. Unlike the recluse, they don't have any violin-shaped markings and appear much lighter. If you get a sack spider bite, you want to treat it as we detail below, even though it can be very painful. So treating a regular spider bite at home. While these typically do not require treatment, some larger spider bites can cause itching and possible infection, especially if you scratch the affected area. Here are some tips to help prevent this. Clean the bite with soap and water or peroxide to prevent infection. Elevate the bite if possible to reduce swelling. Take antihistamines to reduce itching. Apply ice in intervals to reduce swelling. And use antibiotic ointment, especially if it blisters, preventing infection. Even the spiders that don't pose a threat with their venom, they can still cause serious damage through exposure and infection. Infection was a steady killer before modern medicine where humans have the ability to clean their wounds. There is no such thing as overcleaning a bite, so make sure you get it free of dirt, debris, and bacteria. Many people have an irrational fear of spiders. Just knowing a little bit about spiders can go a long way in preparing you to deal with them. Bites are pretty easy to manage if you know that you are look, what you are looking for. Sometimes the battle is figuring out what type of bug bite you, what bug bit you rather than what spider. Certain bug bites also cause two puncture wounds that are typically the signature of spiders. I don't get bent out of shape over spiders, but snakes, that's a different story. I would prefer to deal with the spider bite over a snake bite any day. I'll face my fear next week when we go over the dangerous snakes found here in America. 
keeping keep exploring stay prepared and be safe so there are uh, the nice little graphic there with all the the bites right next to them uh, as you go and uh, check that out uh, but uh, you know there's something something to consider and you know I I also would like to to you know there's you clean it and all that kind of stuff but you know how, what would you do if we were really grid down situation and uh, you know like a recluse spider bit you uh, you know what would you do in that situation how would you take care of that uh, I don't remember if Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Wilderness Survival Handbook takes care of that or not. Uh, I think they do, but I'm not 100% certain. I got to go check that out. But uh, you know, that's probably something that you want to familiarize with yourself with because if uh, if we really truly have a grid down situation and uh, a long term grid down situation, we're going to be spending a lot more time outside, and uh, we're not as um, as prepared as older generations and being able to identify trees and plants and weeds and all that kind of stuff and even even stuff like spiders and, and, and snakes and all that. So, uh, you know, uh, something you probably want to start maybe familiarizing yourself with uh, in case something like that happens. But uh, good good article over there. A lot of good stuff. So, hey, uh, thanks so much for listening to episode 126. If you get a chance, come by the website and uh, share out episode 126 with your friends on social media. We make it really, really easy for you. If you haven't been a part of or started or joined the Facebook group, uh, come over to amoreselfreliantlife.com. That will take you straight there. Or if you come to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com, we have a link in the menu that takes you straight there, and you just ask to join. And uh, you know, we we let you be a part of that uh, community. We're we're looking for a community and people who can help each other. There's a lot of people who just come and lurk, and uh, that's fine. There's a lot more, uh, a lot of other people who just you know kind of share what's going on. Uh, in their lives or on their farm and maybe give little tidbits, share articles out or things like that. Uh, nothing that, uh, you know, we want it to be a place where, I, I hate to say the safe place thing, you know, uh, because that just takes on a whole nother connotation. But uh, we want it to be a place where people can feel free to ask questions and they're not going to get blasted for it, right? And so if you're not a part of that, come on over and uh, join our Facebook group. We'd love to have you. Uh, love to have you there and be a part of the group, even if it's going to just be lurking for a little while. And then uh, you know, feel free to share share out if you'd like. And you can be in as much as involved as you'd like. All right. So with that, choose not to choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace. <laughs>